0: You understand, I don't hate her. I hate what she's become. I hate the illness.
1: Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace?
0: You mean an institution, a madhouse? People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? put her in some place.
1: I'm sorry, I didn't mean it to sound uncaring.
0: What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears, the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there? But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds.
1: I am sorry. I I only felt it seems she's hurting you. I meant well.
0: People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course. I've suggested it myself, but I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you?
2: Oh, you wanna play psycho killer? (laughs) Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I wanna be in the sequel.
0: I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly
2: insane? Look at me, Damien! It's all for you!
3: I am the eater of wolves and of children! You know, it's
4: Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare.
5: Hello everyone and welcome to another terrifying installment Of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 285, Psycho.
6: There's certain movies that we do for the show that I know are great, I know are some of the best movies that have ever been made, and then I watch it for the show and it's a whole other level. This movie's just incredible.
5: We're of course discussing the original 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The granddaddy of all slasher films, one of the most influential horror films and films ever made.
6: I'm probably one of the unique individuals that saw the Gus Van Sant remake before this, but (laughs) (laughs) some of that just has to do with my age and when that came out. Because that was like a pretty big story whenever that's the movie that he decided to make.
5: Yeah, after Good Will Hunting. Right. So yes, this is, believe it or not, the 7th Greatest October We use the special theme, we get into the mood, we're all prepping for... I love it. ...Halloween.
6: I love the Greatest October theme.
5: The episodes are going to be coming out a little bit differently than usual, so be on high alert. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Just because, A, we cram in the extra episode usually in October, and B, I do all the work... (laughs) And I will be traveling for a week.
6: In case you didn't know.
5: Things are going to be a little jammed up here at the beginning. And then there will be like a little bit of a break. And then, you know, whatever. So just make sure you're subscribed. The episodes are going to be coming out on random days throughout the entirety of the month. Follow us on Twitter, at GreatestPod. And you can request a sticker for free. And we'll send that to you.
6: Yeah, they're going worldwide.
5: And you can find us on Letterboxd, zach 1983 And Matt Crosby. So yes, we did American Psycho earlier this year. Way back when we did Psycho 2 as part of a double feature (laughs) episode, which is something we usually don't do. But we'll talk about that more later on when we get to the sequels portion of the Psycho story. Right. So here we are, finally. This is our third time round with Alfred Hitchcock. This film, Psycho, had a screenplay by... Joseph Stefano, who while writing it, he was in therapy dealing with his relationship with his own mother. So there oh, you go. Yeah, yeah. It was based on the nineteen fifty nine novel of the same name by Robert Block. It had a budget of eight hundred and six thousand nine hundred and forty seven dollars. Very specific <laughs> yeah, number. Yeah. The box office was fifty million, making it an enormous hit in 1960. The highest grossing of Hitchcock's entire career became one of Hitchcock's best and most defining works.
6: Yeah, it's probably not my favorite of his to watch, but it's hard to argue that it's not his best. It's just such a masterpiece, so well crafted. There's so much to dig into.
5: It really pushed the envelope at the time for violence deviant behavior and sexuality in film and along with peeping tom which also came out in 1960 gave birth to the slasher subgenre within the world of horror films and this is something that will probably repeat a million times throughout this episode it will become a refrain in 1960 there was just nothing like this Uh in so many ways not just the violence but the story structure oh i know the emphasis on spoilers, which is something we'll get into.
6: The whole idea that Marion Crane is almost like a red herring to what the story actually is, and you're with her for half the movie.
5: Yeah, and she was played by Janet Lee, who was the most recognizable person in the film.
6: Just everything about it,
5: from the subject matter, to the pushing of the boundaries, to killing off your main character, just everything was completely different.
6: Has an iconic score, even. There might have been some other iconic scores, though. Sure, but I'm just saying, like, it's the complete package.
5: Block's novel was loosely based on the crimes and exploits of, you guessed it, Ed Gein. That's right. Who only lived 40 miles from Block. And, yes, I do think we talked about Mr. Gein a little bit during the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode because he was also the inspiration for that. That's right. But just to give everyone a refresher... Edward Theodore Gain, born in 1906, died in 1984, also known as the Butcher of Plainfield or the Plainfield Ghoul. I'd love to have a nickname in my life with ghoul attached. <laughs> <laughs> well,
6: I'm not ready to say you don't.
5: Was an American murderer and body snatcher. Gain's crimes committed around his hometown of Plainfield, Wisconsin, gathered widespread notoriety in 1957 after authorities discovered. He had exhumed corpses from local graveyards and fashioned trophies and keepsakes from their bones and skin.
6: Hmm. Seems like a tough guy to be around.
5: Gain also confessed to killing two women, and I think he also had a pretty big mommy issue. Oh, yeah. So there you have it. There's some changes from the novel. We're not going to harp on that too much because I've never read the book, and I don't even know how widely available it is at this
6: point. Or renowned? I don't know. If this was something that was a hot commodity to adapt or just something that Hitchcock found.
5: A little more of the latter. Yeah, that's
6: what I was thinking. The Anthony Hopkins Hitchcock movie does work as sort of a companion piece to this because it is all about him getting this movie made, but it wasn't the best movie and I don't really remember all the details of it. Let's
5: just focus on the character of Norman Bates because Bates is significantly different in the film than he is in the source material. It was Hitchcock's idea to cast Anthony Perkins, which sparked something in Stefano, and together they created a completely different, almost sympathetic version of Bates. In the book, he is middle-aged, overweight, and much more overtly unstable. His drinking also factored into the story much more, something eliminated from the film. Also gone are Bates's various interests in spiritualism, the occult, and pornography. Perkins was only 26 at the time and considered handsome and felt. and so it triggers a different response in audiences right off the bat. It also helps more or less conceal his true nature from the unsuspecting viewers. Yeah, yeah. Bates is also hidden from the audience for the first 27 or so minutes of the film. Instead drawing our attention to Marion Crane, this misdirection of the audience is as famous as as almost anything else about Psycho. The movie, in large part, was made because Hitchcock was fed up with the big-budget, star-studded movies he had recently been making and wanted to experiment with the more efficient, sparser style of television filmmaking. He ultimately used a crew consisting mostly of television veterans and hired actors and actresses less well-known than those he usually used.
6: It was definitely portrayed, at least in the Hopkins movie, that the studios did not want to make this movie.
5: Yes. Specifically, Vertigo, which was later hailed as a masterpiece, was considered a bloated, over-budgeted misfire, and while North by Northwest was hailed as a masterpiece and was a hit, it was a huge production, and it was also very time-consuming and expensive. So Hitch decided to scale things back for this next movie, which became Psycho. Also during the same period, his rival, French New Wave and noir film director Henri-Georges Clouseau, hit the bullseye and created a critical box office sensation with the classic Diabolique, Mm, which is something that Hitchcock tried to get the rights to and was snatched away from him at the last minute by Clouseau. All the critics said Clouseau had out-Hitchcocked Hitchcock, and this presented a confrontation which Hitch could not turn down. (laughs) Diabolique was a small-scale, gritty, black-and-white independent movie So Hitch decided to out Diabolique Diabolique and directed his own small scale gritty black and white project that was Psycho. It's important to note for people who maybe aren't as familiar with film history. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock had been working in color for a long time prior to Psycho. Him deciding to go back to black and white and to scale everything down was a very conscious decision. And as you pointed out, the studio was not interested in this at all. And so he had to come up with ways to fund it himself on the cheap and sort of do it in a more what we would consider independent style
6: now. This being in black and white is one of the things that really threw off what his whole filmography was in my mind. I guess I just naturally thought that people made black and white movies when they had to and that it was. Well, yeah, and then I didn't realize at a younger age that It was actually an artistic choice, and this movie was made after like Rear Window and Vertigo and several other color films.
5: There's a lot of reasons for the black and white choice. One of them being, had this movie been in color, they probably would not have been able to do some of the things with the shower scene that they do. Oh yeah. And get away with it. You could not have had the blood going down the drain and all that stuff in color, in bright red.
6: Right. It does work for a lot of the scenes though, too. There's a lot of, like, shadows at play.
5: Peggy Robertson, Hitchcock's longtime assistant, found the novel. Paramount had already rejected it by that point. <laughs> yeah. Before Hitchcock was even involved, said, no, this won't make a movie. Right. Hitchcock paid 9500 for the rights himself. Paramount executives balked at Hitchcock's proposal and refused to provide his usual budget. In response, Hitchcock offered to film Psycho quickly and cheaply in black and white using his Alfred Hitchcock Presents television series crew. And Paramount kept balking all down the line, and then Hitchcock personally financed the project and then filmed it at Universal International using his Shamley Productions crew if Paramount would distribute. And then this is the big thing. In lieu of his usual $250,000 director's fee, he proposed a 60% stake in the film Negative, This combined offer was accepted, and Hitchcock went ahead in spite of naysaying from producers and eventually became very, very wealthy (laughs) because of this film.
6: Good call. Well, he bet on himself and he won.
5: Paramount would have preferred Hitchcock stuck with the original plan, which was to make a film called No Bail for the Judge, starring Audrey Hepburn. But she became pregnant and had to bow out, leading Hitchcock to scrap the entire production. Their official stance was that the book was too repulsive and impossible for films, and nothing but another of his star-studded mystery thrillers would suffice to fulfill his contract with Paramount, because they were guaranteed another film. And this led to him making all those concessions. But I think out of necessity breeds genius sometimes, and I think that at certain points in filmmakers' careers... When they're backed into a corner, oh, where yeah. they have to make do with something that is a little more difficult. That challenge is what sort of what inspires them to go further and do something different.
6: Yeah, there's this need to earn it. Yeah. There's more on the line when you're playing with your own money instead of someone else's.
5: Seiko was infamous at the time because it did contain a lot of taboos. In the opening scene, Sam and Marion are shown as lovers, sharing the same bed, but they are not married. There's some gender nonconformity. Even the term transvestite is used. I know. Although it's incorrect, I guess, based on what the psychiatrist tells us. The censors didn't even want that to be used and they had to prove that it was a scientific and medical term. Oh, wow. There's also a lot of debate over whether or not you can actually see Janet Lee's breasts in the shower scene, which became a big topic amongst the censors. Even the hint of nudity in 1960 was unheard of right, especially right. in mainstream theatrical films by today's standards which all taboos have been explored as far as violence and sexuality and, nudity uh-huh. and everything the shower scene is not particularly shocking in that sense but if you do get into the mindset of what else was in cinema in 1960 watching it can still be a little bit surprising yeah, yeah. And how much they do show. I, I agree. And how it looks, especially if you slow it down and go frame by frame, which they sort of yeah. do in that documentary, which we'll talk about a little bit more later.
6: Yeah, it's sort of a little extended than what my memory was.
5: Another cause for concern for the censors was that Marion was shown flushing a toilet <laughs> with its contents, which in this case, happens to be torn up paper, right? fully visible. No flushing toilet had appeared in mainstream film and television in the United States at that time. That's time? how repressed yeah, yeah. society was. And for whatever reason, I know that the screenwriter Stefano was adamant yeah. that they include a flushing toilet.
6: If we saw this in the theater like at the time, people would have been walking out around us when the toilet was flushed.
5: I don't know, it seemed like audiences yeah. were going crazy Oh yeah, movie. They Glamour were desperate for, for this. Exactly. <laughs> we need to see those toilets flushing now. <laughs> Initial reviews of the film were actually mixed, which to me just proves how pointless and disposable much of film criticism has always been. Definitely. Once the film became a smash hit, an influential phenomenon, and an undisputed classic, critics of course reassessed the film far more positively. In fact, when you research it, you can pretty much find some of the same critics who had reviewed it I'm negatively, sure, yeah. changing their opinions. One yeah. of the reasons why there may have been a lackluster critical response was because of Hitchcock's obsession with no spoilers getting out for this movie, critics were forced to review it just seeing it with general audiences. There were oh. no special critic screenings.
6: Yeah, I'm sure they were a little butthurt about that. <laughs>
5: Psycho was nominated for four Academy Awards. Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Janet Leigh. Best Director, Alfred Hitchcock. Best Cinematography, Black and White for John L. Russell. And Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Black and White. Joseph Hurley, Robert Clatworthy, and George Milo. This was the year of The Apartment, which won Best Picture and Best Director, one of my favorite films. So I have no problem with psycho not winning but you do have to point out this was the last time that hitchcock was nominated for best director an award he never won wow until an honorary oscar and psycho was not nominated for best picture
6: yeah i don't know Uh, constantly getting it wrong (laughs) (laughs) the master of suspense never wins best director
5: one of the recurring themes of this podcast over the years emerging has been how much the Oscars stink. Yeah, <laughs> The Oscars and critics.
6: Really no finger on the pulse of what's actually good. And people on
5: Twitter and Letterboxd. Yeah, yeah. And everybody. <laughs> everybody who's ever had an opinion is terrible. <laughs> Psycho focuses a little bit more on irony than some of Hitchcock's work prior.
6: To oh, definitely. Film.
5: And there's a definite callousness to it, too where the characters are haunted by destructive decisions, I think part of that obviously plays into what happens with Marion Crane, and there's really no way to do that and pull it off, except the way that they do do it. However, I think more so than some of the more traditional style narratives where the leading actress was treated in a certain way and was built up as the star, your Grace Kellys, etc. Oh, yeah.
6: Well, Hitchcock seemed to have legendary complicated relationships with his leading ladies
5: yeah but i'm saying that as far as the story goes yeah that marion is hung up in the past the characters are stuck in suspended animation whether it's norman bates or marion crane sort of two sides of the same coin which is that that conversation they have about personal traps and falling into traps they both realize that they're in a trap yes and then marion's decision to get out of the trap but the callousness of the film is that by the time she realizes she makes the right decision it's too late and she's killed anyway
6: well you'll see several people point out even in the opening shots of the movie the way that the credits are coming across the screen kind of looks like bars coming across and then the window the way that the the blinds are it looks like bars as well so immediately establishing this sort of feeling trapped
5: There's also an obsession with preservation that that runs throughout the film, and you have Norman's interest in taxidermy and, and stuffing the birds, and then it sort of works as a clue as to maybe what's going on with his mother the entire time. But there's also these monuments and visuals to the past and different times, and the inability to escape your past. Marion, often cast in darkness, is also chased by it. Hitchcock returns again and again to shadows and mirrors, sometimes Windows 2, all the things you're pointing out. I think that the obsession with mirrors in the film and reflection is maybe as simple as her conscious haunting her after her decision. Psycho was the first psychoanalytical thriller, a perverted cocktail of sex and violence, the likes of which the world had never seen. And then it's taken one step further by Norman's slavish devotion to the specter of his mother further warping his carnal desires and homicidal impulses. You simply cannot minimize the impact this particular film had on the history of movies and culture at large. De Palma, oh yeah, Carpenter, <laughs> Craven, but literally everything else. Right, I know. Beyond just horror films and horror directors, the freedom that yeah. came with the 1970s, the schlock of the 1980s, Right. It all can get traced back. I
6: know. You can compare it to like the influence that the Beatles had on music.
5: Yeah. It just so happens that one of the 10 most important and influential films is a horror film, a film that launched the slasher genre because it taps into what people want to see, as fucked up as that is. Yeah, yeah. The truth was As societal norms changed and evolved, people wanted to see darker things on screen. They wanted to see sexier things on screen. They wanted to see more violent things on screen.
6: I know. And the thing you hit on earlier is just such a brilliant move to go from making Norman Bates this unlikable creep to this guy that kind of seems young and good-looking. And even though he's goofy, there's a little bit of a charm there, too, in his primary scene with Marion. That definitely sets the stage for something completely different than just making this guy a creepy dude. Right, yeah.
5: Right off the bat. Yeah, because he seems like the boy next door. And one of the things that just jumps out to me, re-watching Psycho for the podcast, is how incredible of a performance it is from Anthony Perkins in this film. Because when you actually think about what he's doing in some of the different scenes and how he's playing it, and I noted it a few times, so I'm sure we'll, we'll point it out as we go, but it just seems like once you know the whole movie, and you've watched it a couple times, and you get where the beats are, and you know where it's going, you can start to think about how he's playing it. Oh, yeah. And you're thinking, okay, so he's playing this moment as if his mother is real, of course, and then I hope that mother doesn't... Hurt her, right? Know, right. You know what I mean. Yeah. Like just these little moments where he's playing it in a certain way, even though he's by himself or something. Uh huh. It's really a great performance, and yes, it did sort of typecast Anthony Perkins. For the I rest know. of his career, but <laughs> both he and Janet Lee seemed to be okay with that because sure. they knew they were a part of something so special iconic and yeah. special.
6: Yeah, you know, he would go on to be in great films like Crimes of Passion.
5: <laughs> yeah, kind of playing the same. Yeah, right. <laughs> character.
6: One of the main ingredients in Psycho,
5: of course, is Bernard Herrmann's score, which you mentioned. It's a crowning achievement in building tension and drama. Hitchcock said that 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music, effective at building a sense of doom and dread that lingers with the audience, keeping them in suspense even during stretches when nothing particularly scary is happening on screen. It's a perfect tool. Uh Uh-huh to let the audience know to be on their toes. Even when the opening of the film, there's nothing particularly intense or scary for a while. Yeah. But you know that something is going to happen.
6: Definitely. (laughs) And it's one of those pieces of music that I just feel like at a certain point when you're growing up, this is just something that you know what it is and what it's from. Like the good, the bad, and the ugly song and everything. Like Those songs, you know it and you recognize it and you can't even remember when it first came on your radar because it was somewhere early in life.
5: Yeah, it's just in the atmosphere, and you absorb it at some point. Even right. if you don't really even know exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. You associate the shrieking, like, with murder or a knife. Uh-huh. You might not even know what Psycho is or have seen it. Yeah. You know kind of the scene or right. what the reference point is. Or
6: even beyond a knife, like, a distinct type of stabbing motion.
5: The music cue for the shower scene alone is worth the price of admission, often imitated and endlessly influential, possibly more famous than any other music cue in the history of cinema. When Hitchcock committed to the idea of making Psycho, he seemingly became obsessed with the idea of spoilers. Despite 1960 being very much a pre-internet age, He was also very concerned with audiences seeing the entirety of the film in order to fully experience the shocking twists and turns and surprises.
6: Which is amazing, because it is the best way to experience movies.
5: But not how people did. I know. Psycho reinvented how theaters are run, basically. First of all, after acquiring the rights to the novel for the purpose of making it into a film, Hitchcock bought up as many physical copies of the book as he could. That's crazy, to try and keep people from discovering the ending. When the cast and crew began work on the first day, they had to raise their right hands and promise not to divulge one word of the story. Hitchcock also withheld the ending part of the script from his cast until he needed to shoot it. So he didn’t even trust the cast. This was also coupled with a very public campaign very much along the lines of don't ruin it for others after you've seen it, that kind of a thing.
6: Yeah, something that's hard to buy would work well in today's age, in the age of information.
5: Yeah. It's almost as if he was preternaturally paranoid in a way that it feels like you didn't even need to be back then. I know. And compared to now. I think now filmmakers just have to shrug and say, well, what can you do? There's exactly. Really not much. But back then... It seems like it would have been pretty possible to see Psycho weeks or months after it came out without having anyone ruin it for you.
6: Just because where would you look? Going into a movie knowing nothing, which is something I was able to do recently, to my delight, is just such a unique experience. I love trailers. such a big part of the movie-going experience and getting a buzz and getting you into something. But there are definitely some great movies that you have to wonder what your own personal experience would have been with it just knowing nothing. Well, the
5: odd thing is, I think the trailer for Psycho was like six minutes long, <laughs> so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, they mess around sometimes in advertisements back then. They would put Vera Miles in the shower screaming. Okay. Yeah. You know, not how it looks in the movie, but right. you, it would just throw you off different directions Yeah. Yeah. like that. But yeah, the original trailer for Psycho, I think, is like six minutes. Wow. <laughs> I think trailers in general were longer back
6: then. That makes sense.
5: Every theater that showed this movie had a cardboard cutout installed in the lobby of Alfred Hitchcock pointing to his wristwatch with a note saying, quote, The manager of this theater has been instructed at the risk of his life not to admit to the theater any persons after the picture starts. Any spurious attempts to enter by side doors, the fire escapes, or ventilating shafts will be met by force. The entire objective of this extraordinary policy, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. Alfred Hitchcock
6: such a theatrical guy outside of even directing the man knew a thing or two about marketing too
5: he always used the excuse that people would come to see the movie star Janet Lee and then be disappointed if they only got to see her for a couple minutes or missed her entirely right because you have to understand that movie theaters just ran the movie on a loop and people would often come in the middle wow and then stay for the first half after seeing the second half I don't know why people did that, but it was not uncommon at all.
6: <laughs> yeah, that was just part of to it. it.
5: Psycho revolutionized appointment screenings and then eventually reserved seats and everything, and just the way it is today. Wow. That forced theaters to adhere to this and not let people in at any time they showed up, which is not how things were done. And I'm kind of glad for that because it
6: seems. Definitely. To me. I know.
5: But you have to also understand pre 1960, even though there's. Countless classic, unbelievable, great, revolutionary, influential films. I think society at large still mostly considered cinema as disposable entertainment. I'm sure. There wasn't as much...
6: Think pieces?
5: Yeah, it wasn't taken as seriously by a large part of the population. It was a way to waste time, a diversion. That's right. Which some people probably still think of it now, but... There's at least a little bit more respect. Sure. Yeah. The idea is you there's show a lot up more on time, you watch the movie and then you leave. There's yeah. no casual laissez faire <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I see and then leave and come back and whatever, you know.
6: Right. There's an entire universe of nerds out there on the internet now glorifying this stuff.
5: <laughs> there's more pressure to take this stuff seriously. As we look into camera, like Jay and Tell pump straight back. <laughs> Finally, legendary designer Saul Bass opening credit sequence. Did a lot of posters and credit sequences in this time. Some of the most noteworthy and iconic stuff. There's a whole weird Saul Bass thing where at one point it seemed like he was claiming credit for directing the shower sequence. He does have these storyboards that he supposedly drew. So it seems like he was involved in some way. Nobody else supports that, including Janet Lee, who would have okay. been there for most of it. So I don't really know where that came from, although he is credited in the credits as pictorial consultant, which no one really knew what that meant. Hitchcock, I think in an interview a decade or so later, said that Saul Bass had done storyboards for the Arbogast murder, okay, but that they weren't used. And then there does seem to be some contradiction, though, because he was in possession of these shower scene ones. I don't really think he did direct it. We'll talk about that more when we actually get to the shower scene. But the opening credits are awesome. Definitely. Anytime he was involved with that kind of stuff, or the poster designs for some of these movies, it always looked really cool. And you can kind of tell his style. Uh, A lot of people now in the social media age of appreciating cinema aesthetic or highlighting and reappraising and enjoying his material Oh, gotcha but yeah i did find that odd the whole thing where it seemed like he was saying he directed it in one interview or something and there's all kinds of myths and legends of course about i know the shower scene and who the
6: fuck knows yeah these types of movies and productions just breed all sorts of myths legends especially rumors. when it
5: becomes the most famous thing ever yeah yeah and of course you know phoenix arizona friday december 11th p.m.
7: You never did eat your lunch, did you?
1: I better get back to the office. These extended lunch hours give my boss excess acid.
7: Why don't you call your boss and tell him you're taking the rest of the afternoon off? Friday anyway,
1: and hot. What do I do with my free afternoon? Walk you to the airport?
7: Well, you could laze around here a while longer.
1: Hmm. Checking out time is 3 p.m. Hotels of this sort aren't interested in you when you come in, but. Your time is up. Oh, Sam, I hate having to be with you in a place like this.
7: Well, I've heard of married couples who deliberately spend an occasional night in a cheap hotel.
1: When you're married, you can do a lot of things deliberately.
7: You sure talk like a girl who's been married.
1: Sam, this is the last time. Yeah? For what? For this. Meeting you in secret so we can be secretive. You come down here on business trips... And We still lunch hours. I wish you wouldn't even come.
7: All right. What do we do instead? Write each other lurid love letters?
1: I have to go, Sam.
7: I can come down next week. No. Not even just to see you? Have lunch? In public?
1: Oh, we can see each other. We can even have dinner, but respectably. In my house, with my mother's picture on the mantel, and my sister helping me broil a big steak for three.
7: And after the steak, did we send sister to the movies, turn mama's picture to the wall? Sam. All right. Marion, whenever it's possible, I want to see you. And under any circumstances, even respectability.
1: You make respectability sound disrespectful.
7: Oh, no, I'm all for it. It requires patience, temperance, a lot of sweating out. Otherwise, though, it's just hard work.
5: During an afternoon, tryst in a cheap hotel room, real estate secretary Marion Crane, played by Janet Leigh, and her boyfriend Sam Loomis discuss their inability to get married because of Sam's various debts, including alimony for his ex-wife.
6: Something horrifying happening right away. Sex out of wedlock. During the daylight. <laughs>
5: <laughs> the funny thing is, the way that people always would carry on and make such a big deal about this, I assumed that he was married still. But when you actually pay attention and think about right. it, he's saying he's not, and he has an ex-wife. I know. But just the idea that they weren't married at all.
6: It was a problem.
5: Gonna find my baby, gonna hold tight, <laughs> gonna grab some afternoon <laughs> daylight. <laughs> What's wrong with a little afternoon
6: delight? You gotta love it. The camera focuses on the sandwich sitting there uneaten. We know what this meetup was all about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
5: it's just the rampant hypocrisy because obviously it's not as if Stefano and Hitchcock are inventing something and putting it in this movie. That's right. People were doing this. Yeah. Just the idea of it being portrayed on screen was a bridge too far. This is
6: just a slice of life folks
5: there's a lot to take out of this scene though Marion's never been married she just wants to be a respectable girl sure she's found a man that she likes that likes her they're in love they're trying to make it happen but sam's worried that he's not going to be able to provide for her
6: the bottom line's not looking too good over at the old hardware store Although
5: that you could just say well that's at least the story he's spinning yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe he just doesn't really want to marry her i don't know
6: I, I, she wants to be an honest woman though Come on, Sam.
5: In addition to being unmarried and in the same bed and everything, there's an extended sequence where she's just in a bra, which showing a bra I don't think was a huge deal, but in this context
6: yeah, made it a
5: little bit more risque than what people were used to.
6: Seems a little uh, sweaty here in Phoenix. (laughs) Just having some body heat vibes.
5: So the idea is there's a little bit of desperation building with Marion. She's getting older she wants to get married, but there's this huge roadblock. It's a lack of money.
6: Right. Which, I gotta tell you, having a financial strain on a marriage is not a good way to start.
5: Marion returns to work in time to meet a drunk, flirtatious, and evidently wealthy man named Tom Cassidy, who is purchasing a property for his daughter using $40,000 in cash. Her boss entrusts the money to her to deposit in a safety deposit box and also allows her to leave sick for the day. Instead, Marion steals the 40K and sets off the drive to Sam's home in Fairvale, California. So obviously, this scenario plays out slowly, yeah. but she's going to be using the weekend to her advantage. She gets a couple days' head start.
6: Yeah. I do like these two carrying on like a long-distance relationship. It seems hard with no cell phones. At some point, he's writing her a letter. She would never get this letter, but...
5: In the novel... It explains that Marion and Sam met on a cruise, and that's why they live in different cities. How about that? Who even knew they were taking cruises in (laughs) know.
6: Hey, Sam, you want to make some budgetary choices? How about cut out the cruise?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you would have never met her in the first place.
6: That's true, yeah.
5: It really is a spur-of-the-moment decision. One that will ultimately cost her her life, although that's unpredictable, I guess. Right. But it's a terrible decision, even if she doesn't end up murdered. I know. It's such a bad idea. And Th- she assumes yeah. that Sam will just go along with this.
6: The way the story is, and I guess it's maybe to add like another level of irony if, if she hadn't fallen into this whole situation that she does, but basically everyone sort of acts like she's going to be given a chance to just get out of this. Just give the money back. And... I don't think
5: she'd have a job anymore. Well, that's true. I think they yeah. just mean they're not going to press charges right? get
6: a big thing and yeah. get the money back. Well, I'm sure Sam will take her on at the hardware store.
5: In the opening scene, Marion Crane is wearing a white bra because Hitchcock wanted to show her as being angelic. After she has taken the money, the following scene has her in a black bra because now she has done something wrong and Mm. evil. Similarly, before she steals the money, she has a white purse, and after, she has a black
6: purse. You gotta love how simple it is sometimes.
5: Oh, yeah. The money she steals is $40,000, which... Factoring in inflation for 2022 would be $400,231.08. Yikes. <laughs> it's a pretty big number.
6: I'd say so. Pretty interesting cash deposit on a Friday.
5: Well, I think the idea is they were going to put it in a safety deposit box because they were going to try to talk this guy out of paying right. cash. Yeah. They didn't want to take his cash for some reason. The Hitchcock cameo comes about six minutes into the film as Janet Lee returns to the office after her lunchtime tryst. Hitchcock is just outside wearing a cowboy hat. Most people assume he chose such an early cameo as to not divert attention away from the plot later in the film. He also got to have it in close proximity to his daughter Patricia, who plays Carolyn, the other secretary. Oh, okay. The one who says that she took tranquilizers on her wedding night. (laughs) Which was kind of fucked up if you pay attention to what people talk about throughout the film i don't want to go too far into the weeds with this but stefano planted little beats and clues and reference points over and over again one of them is mother oh yeah when marion says to sam i want to have a respectable night and have dinner with my sister with my mother's picture facing us on the wall and sam makes a joke about sending sister to the movies and turning the picture around (laughs) And then, Carolyn in the office is also talking about her mother. Right, mother giving her the tranquilizers. Mother calling her, and then characters throughout the film, including Sam and Marion in the opening scene, will all they keep talking about motels. Okay. The policeman on the side of That's the That's right. Yeah. Why can't you go to a motel? Everyone's always pushing. You're always pushing in this direction to uh-huh. get to this inevitable conclusion.
6: Moms and motels.
5: On her way out of town, Marion is spotted by her employer when she's stopped at a red light, confusing him and startling her. Sort of like Butch and Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction. (laughs) She just slams on the gas and runs him over. (laughs) She then drives until darkness falls, gets sleepy, and then pulls over to rest, accidentally sleeping through the entire night, which arouses the suspicion of a patrol officer who finds her by the side of the road acting all nervous and jumpy. Oh,
6: I know. Suspicion of mischief.
5: That's a recurring thing in this movie as well, is people just not being able to play it cool. I know. Marion. Norman. Norman, People just panicking instantly. (laughs) I'm caught. This is total storytelling misdirection at this point. A movie star, Janet Leigh, playing a character who has stolen a large sum of money in a universe, meaning our universe, where... Movies like Psycho didn't really exist, so the audience, for the most part, probably doesn't really have much of a clue as to what's coming. Yeah, yeah. Because even though because of Psycho, Hitchcock often got associated with horror, he really wasn't a horror director by any stretch. Most of his movies would have had plots about yeah a good-looking woman stealing $40,000. That right. would have been the story. Exactly. And the $40,000 is truly a red herring. Oh, yeah. It ends up factoring in not at all by the end of the movie. But at this point in the film, the audience is completely off guard as to what's going to happen. Marion hurriedly trades her car en route.
6: This scene is always insane because the cop is just standing there watching her do this. Baffling
5: the car dealer (laughs) with her urgency, all the while still being watched by the same police officer who briefly stopped following her only to reappear. She has to give her car up plus $700 for this other car. Yeah. She takes the 700 from the 40 k
6: This is one of those moments, and it is like the long build of suspense. You feel the relief that she feels when the cop stops following her, when he takes that exit and he's no longer behind her. But it is a little bit of a jolt to the system. What the hell? He's just there again?
5: Yeah. I do think that it's possible that You can think of the cop as purely a storytelling Mm -hmm. device. Not a real world thing. In other words, he's just being used to build suspense. Yeah. There's really no logic to what's going on here, other than I guess he's a little bit suspicious of her, but if he had been following her the whole time, I would maybe be more willing to buy that as something that's happening. But the fact that he takes that turn off the highway and then re-catches up with her at the car dealership is weird. So I know. wondering, are we supposed to just feel paranoia here but not necessarily feel like this is based in reality or is realistic or anything like that? I don't know.
6: Yeah, hard to say. But this salesman is trying to carry on a normal business interaction here. And she's just like, look, dude, just tell me how much money you want for this car and get me out of here. Which I, you just wouldn't think helps her overall situation with this police officer. If anything, this is just adding more suspicion to the whole situation. But then again, what is this guy's jurisdiction? (laughs) I mean, come on. She's got to get across county lines here quickly.
5: One of the big contributors to the building paranoia is Herman's score reoccurring through a lot of these moments. And then as she's driving, Marion starts to hear these voices and it's her boss. Plus the guy Cassidy. Then it's, Carolyn and then the car dealer and the Uh cop as if they're talking after she left. And it's a little bit confusing and disconcerting, but I think because eventually she hears a theoretical conversation of herself and Sam as if she's just showing up and she's trying to imagine what Sam would say, Right. you can pretty much take that these are just her thoughts. They're not real conversations.
6: I know, but it does play in a way that makes you feel like this is actually what's being said.
5: I'm saying that because of the context clue. Yeah, yeah. Because we know the Sam conversation never happened. Right, right. she never yeah. gets there. So I just assume that these are all things she's thinking. Yeah, Say They could be real. In theory,
6: well, not in theory. At this point, it's really Saturday, right? I mean, she slept one night in her car. Yes. Would they be discovering the money this quickly? I guess.
5: Probably not. Yeah. Unless her boss seeing her... On the road, really raised a red flag. Yeah, yeah. I would have just thought, oh, she lied about being sick, but right. not that she stole forty thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Driving at night again, it starts to pour. Marion decides to stop at the Bates Motel, located off of the main highway. She hides the stolen money inside a newspaper. Proprietor Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins descends from a large house overlooking the motel
6: this to me is just one of the best sets in any movie ever the hotel with the house kind of perched up from it with the steps that descend down to it it's just like one of the coolest settings ever in a movie
5: yeah and the sets actually survive to this day albeit in different locations than where they once were and they are available to see on tours and whatnot oh wow they're always iconic every time you see the house and motel combo, even in the sequels and everything else. Film and horror Hall of Fame stuff here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Edward Hopper, the painter, inspired the design. House by the Railroad from 1925. I have a few small Edward Hopper prints on my wall, but you can definitely see that aesthetic if you Google the picture, House by the Railroad, 1925. Uh-huh. You'll see exactly how they got the design of the house and everything else. The really jarring part that maybe you don't think about as much when you think about all the different things from Psycho is that Marion turns out to only be 15 miles away from Fairvale.
6: Figuring out the geography of the story actually was something I focused on way more this time because you're like, okay, so Sam lives... I I don't know how many hours of a drive this is. How many is it? I don't know.
5: Oh, well, I thought that's what you meant when yeah. you said you focused on it. I thought you were going to know. No,
6: but you do realize as the story goes on that she's right by him because he knows the local cop and everything.
5: Yeah, Norman tells her. that Right. He, get, he says, oh, the diner is the closest place to get food. It's like five miles outside of Fairvale says, or something. Okay, yeah. Sh- she's like, oh, I'm that close. She, and he's like, yeah, you're 15 miles from Fairvale. Oh, right, yeah. But at that point, it's super late. It's raining. She's just ready. In a pre cell phone world, she can't just send a text.
6: Correct, yeah. To Sam, you up. You up. up.
0: <laughs> Gee, I'm sorry I didn't hear you in all this rain. Go ahead in, please. Dirty night.
1: You have a vacancy?
0: Oh, we have 12 vacancies 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. They, uh, they moved away the highway.
1: Oh, I thought I'd gotten off the main
0: road. I knew you must have. Nobody ever stops here anymore unless they've done that. But... There's no sense dwelling on our losses. We just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities. Your home address. Or just the town
1: will do. Los Angeles.
0: cabin one it's closer in case you want anything right next to the office
1: i want to sleep more than anything else except maybe food
0: well there's a big diner about 10 miles up the road just outside of fairvale
1: am i that close to fairvale
0: 15 miles i'll get your bags in here well the uh, mattress is soft and there's hangers in the closet and stationery with Bates Motel printed on it in case you want to make your friends back home feel envious (laughs) and the uh, over there the bathroom yeah well uh, if, if, if you want anything just Just tap on the wall, I'll I'll be in the
1: office. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Bates.
0: Norman Bates. You're not really gonna go out again and drive up to the diner, are you? No. Well then, would you do me a favor? Would you have dinner with me? I was just about to myself. You know, nothing special, just sandwiches and milk, but I'd like it very much if you'd come up to the house. I I don't set a fancy table, but the kitchen's awful homey.
1: I'd like to.
0: All right, yeah. Uh, you, you get yourself settled and, and take off your wet shoes and I'll be back as soon as it's ready. Okay. With my, with my trusty umbrella.
5: Norman registers Marion under an assumed name, Marie Samuels, and uh-huh. invites her to dine with him. As I said, it's a tremendous performance by Perkins, almost too good because it's one that would see him typecast for the rest of his career. There's something troubling about Norman, but it's not easy to put your finger on it at first. But it's a barely concealed eagerness.
6: Sure, yeah.
5: That's what it feels like, an unnatural excitement that's just bursting through a little bit, just underneath the surface, bubbling up. Yeah,
6: it seems like something's off, but you can totally buy this person being eager that there's a customer there. It doesn't seem like this place has been doing a lot of business.
5: Yeah, and it could be oh, it's a pretty woman, and I never see anybody.
6: (laughs) Doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to kill her. I can hardly contain myself.
5: There's a little too much nervous energy, but Marion's got her own shit to deal with, so she's not picking up on it in the right way, which is probably why she agrees to eat dinner with him.
6: Yeah, weirdly, this might be the safest that she's felt.
5: After Norman returns to the house, Marion overhears him arguing with his mother about Marion's presence.
2: No, I tell you, no. I won't have you bringing strange young girls in for supper. By candlelight, I suppose, in the cheap erotic fashion of young men with cheap erotic minds.
0: Mother, please.
2: And then what? After supper? Music? Whispers?
0: Mother, she's just a stranger. She's hungry and it's raining out.
2: Mother, she's just a stranger. As if men don't desire strangers. As if... Oh, I refuse to speak of disgusting things because they disgust me. You understand, boy? Go on, go tell her she'll not be appeasing her ugly appetite with my food or my son. Or do I have to tell her because you don't have the guts? Huh, boy? You have the guts, boy?
0: Shut up! Shut up!
5: I will say that I've heard the novel is able to cheat a little bit. Well. Because it not only has conversations between Norman and his mother, it will literally describe things that she's doing as Ooh, if she's in the okay, scene. Like and so acting yeah, things out. Of course the... Mother took a sip of tea. The reader of the novel is going to be completely blindsided by a twist ending because they basically cheat and act like she's there sure, in a way that you could never really know because you're just reading words on a page. So what can you do? But at this point... It seems like a twisted Oedipal nightmare, sexual repression, and the inherent unspoken frustration of any young man Norman's age who's stuck in this world where he's taking care of his invalid mother, but he just wants to fuck, (laughs) but his mother is actually inherently misogynist which is a reflection of the times, maybe, but also even a more old-fashioned sense, even by 1960, where women are sexual just in nature. Their mere existence is sexual.
6: I will say Norman's life seems stressful dealing with this whole mother situation, but also having to carry around this dead weight of a business.
5: Yeah, I think the whole concept of the business is explored a little bit more in the novel. It was... His mother's boyfriend's idea. And okay. then, even though we know the fate of what ends up happening with them, for whatever reason, Norman keeps it going as something to do, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, sex is bad. Sex is dirty. Definitely. And that's the weight that Norman is carrying around on his shoulders because he sees this beautiful woman and is getting thoughts, getting his oh, yeah. engine revved a little <laughs> bit. And that's a bad thing.
6: Yeah. Maybe we could get something going here.
5: Norman returns with a light meal for Marion and sheepishly apologizes for his mother's outbursts when Marion mentions what she overheard. They dine in a small parlor adjacent to the motel office. Norman discusses his hobby as a taxidermist.
6: This is all seeming super inviting and chill from Marion's perspective. This room is creepy.
5: His mother's illness quote-unquote, and how people have a, quote, private trap that they want to escape.
6: Yes. So there you go. Trap theme back in the mix.
5: Norman's talking about his own life, or at least the life that he's telling Marion that he has, where he is unable to fully live his own life because he's spending all of this time taking care of his mother and he can't leave and he can't put her anywhere, quote-unquote, because that really sets him off. So <laughs>
6: yeah, really, that's it's-
5: his private trap, but at the same time, he actually has a real connection with Marion, and Marion seems receptive to having this conversation and being his friend and everything, and she starts thinking about her own private trap that she's just built for herself, where if she's not careful, the rest of her life is going to be defined yes. by an impulsive bad decision she made without really thinking it through. And this is what starts sending her on the path towards an attempted salvation. Maybe a,
6: a walk back.
1: Is your time so empty? No. Uh,
0: well, I, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother. The one she allows I might be capable of doing.
1: And do you go out with friends?
0: Well, a a boy's best friend is his mother. You've never had an empty moment in your entire life, have you?
1: Only my share. Where are you going?
0: I didn't mean to pry.
1: I'm looking for a private island.
0: What are you running away from?
1: Why do you ask that?
0: People never run away from anything. The rain didn't last long, did it? You know what I think? I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us can ever get out. We scratch and and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. And for all of it, we never budge an inch.
1: Sometimes we deliberately step into those traps.
0: I was born in mine. I don't mind it anymore.
1: Oh, but you should. You should mind it.
0: Oh, I do, but I say I don't.
1: You know, if anyone ever talked to me the way I heard, the way she spoke to you,
0: Sometimes, when she talks to me like that, I feel I'd like to go up there and curse her and, and, and leave her forever. Or at least to fire. But I know I can't.
5: There's some off-color secret jokes here. Stuffing birds. Birds is slang for women. <laughs> Stuffing women. Fucking women the fate of norman's mother yes wink wink true. taxidermy wink wink <laughs> yeah what the fuck this is when perkins delivers the iconic line a boy's best friend is his mother <laughs> 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 which is one of those was, things when somebody says it you just kind of go oh okay and then you so like, is yeah that true
6: <laughs> something's up with this dude yeah i was gonna say let me think is it He even
5: says about his mother she's as harmless as one of these stuffed birds, which is another pretty big clue
6: about what's going on. It's all right there for you.
5: But when Marion suggests putting his mother somewhere, which we all know what that means.
6: (laughs) Yeah, she kind of steps in it with this suggestion. There's a sudden
5: cold intensity there that's a little bit frightening and disconcerting and a complete change in norman's demeanor he yeah. goes from jittery and non-stop moving and kind of anxious to not moving at all right frozen and looking at her it's a little bit alarming
6: sure perhaps i've reacted unfavorably
5: though a little awkward and even momentarily uncomfortable because of that marion's conversation with norman seems to inspire her to try and make things right if she can she decides to drive back to phoenix <sighs> in the morning
6: she was so close to sam in return the
5: stolen money. However, she tells Norman her real last name is Crane, which Norman knows does not match what she wrote in the guest register, which was Mary Samuels. Marion goes back to her room, and Norman removes a painting from off of the wall in the parlor revealing a peephole <laughs> where he is able to spy on Marion undressing.
6: Well, this Norman doesn't seem like such a nice guy anymore. Then Norman
5: determinedly marches back up to the main house, This time we follow him inside, he seems undecided, unsure of what to do. So it's a very subtle thing that the audience may not even pick up on right away, unless they're consciously thinking of it. The point of view of the film seems to switch here. For the first time, we're not with Marion. That's right. All of a sudden, we're spending this time with only Norman, a guy we just met.
6: And this won't be the last time.
5: So now that Marion's decided to do the right things... What's more purifying than a shower? Literally and symbolically and figuratively. Any way you want to look at it, she is cleansing herself of her sins.
6: Yeah. There's a lot of interesting shots throughout this entire movie. Even the way that they do the violence almost seems like stylized and artistic. But one that always jumps out to me is when the water first turns on and like hits her in the way that she reacts to it. It's a
5: completely normal way to start a shower. Yeah. <laughs> Just stand right in there
6: and let like
5: hope that it's not freezing yeah. cold, I guess. As Marion showers, a shadowy figure appearing to be wearing a dress, comes into the bathroom, pulls back the shower curtain, and stabs her to death. So now we're going to spend some time going through the shower scene. There's a lot to talk about. It's yeah. one of the most discussed, written about, mythologized is that a word
6: i'm i'm thinking we can go with it yeah
5: sequences in all of film the centerpiece of the film and perhaps the most well-known and truly iconic scenes in all of film history and this obsession over the scene has spawned all sorts of rumors and legends and myths and all kinds of different stuff we're not going to get into every single thing obviously that would be insane you could probably do your own separate episode just on this scene based on the information that's out there and give us a second the finished scene runs around three minutes but took an entire week to shoot right before christmas of 1959
6: nice holiday spirit
5: in fact janet lee worked on psycho for only three weeks in total so one third of that was dedicated to her death scene oh wow the specifics are debated, but the documentary seventy eight fifty two 52 Hitchcock's shower scene released in 2017, latches onto the figures 78, as in 78 different shots, and 52, as in 52 different cuts. However, other estimates place the total number of shots used around 60 rather than 78, but who knows? It doesn't even matter, really. <laughs> yeah. We're not that technical of a podcast, that's for sure, so what can we do?
6: Sure. One thing I will say, never really like experiencing this film at a young age and seeing Gus Van Sant's version first, he did a pretty good job with the update, too. It actually creeped me out when the figure comes behind the shower scene, like where you can see the outline of this woman. It was horrifying to me.
5: One of the people talking in 7852 was either the cinematographer or the editor or somebody from the remake, and they basically realized at a certain point they couldn't do it
6: yeah. shot for shot. They right. just
5: could not figure out how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. So they it's did so it their weird. own way, and right. then Gus Van Zandt added in his own weirdness to it. So it's a little different. But yeah, they had to sort of scrap the shot for shot sure. idea because they, yeah. they couldn't match it up, and they couldn't make it look right. Because sometimes it's so weird. trying to do it shot for shot, you can't recapture whatever the same magic was, and right. so it just doesn't look as good. It doesn't exactly. look right. To capture the straight on shot of the shower head, the camera had to be equipped with a long lens. The inner holes of the shower head were blocked and the camera placed a sufficient distance away so that the water, while appearing to be aimed directly at the lens, actually went around and passed it. So one of the shots is like as if it's a POV of Marion looking up into the shower head. Which is right. a very unique looking thing. Absolutely. Even to this day. Yeah, yeah. The soundtrack of Screeching Violins, Violas, and Cellos was an original all-strings piece by composer Bernard Herrmann titled The Murder. Hitchcock originally intended to have no music for the sequence and all motel scenes, by the way, but Herrmann insisted he try his composition. Afterward, Hitchcock agreed it vastly intensified the scene and nearly doubled Herrmann's salary as a result. Oh,
6: (laughs) But it's blasting in the sequence as well.
5: The blood in the scene was Hershey's chocolate syrup, which shows up better on black and white film and has more realistic density than stage blood. The sound of the knife entering flesh was created by plunging a knife into a cassava melon. They also mixed that together with some meat cuts as well to get the perfect sound.
6: Oh, good. It's all sounding very inviting right now. I think
5: the genius of the scene ends up being that in 1960, it was able to convince audiences that they had seen something that they hadn't seen and to experience something that they hadn't actually experienced. Oh, yeah. You don't actually see Janet Lee's nudity, probably. Although that seems debatable, I guess. Some people think you do. You don't actually see a knife enter into her. What you actually see is a couple of shots of the knife pressed up against her skin and then pulled back and then they do it in reverse so it looks like it's going forward. Oh, yeah. But there's no actual knife penetration. Right, right. (laughs) And then that combined with the sound, of course. Yeah, yeah.
6: Mostly like her with her arms up like shrieking.
5: Even back then, people were convinced in their memory that they had seen red blood swirling around into the drain, but it was in black and white. There was no red blood. I know. But people were that keyed into it because the scene was so shocking and overwhelming. Though Janet Leigh claimed that it was her for every shot in the shower, it does seem as if Marley Renfro, a Playboy bunny of the era, did serve as a body double for not only the parts where Norman later retrieves the body, but also some of the actual shower material as well. Okay. She would appear on the cover of Playboy in September of 1960 in a shower. How about that? The nudity both real and imagined and implied, is very jarring for 1960, even if you don't quite see the whole deal. Definitely. There's enough of a sense of it where it still kind of blows your mind. There's a couple of quick shots.
6: Certainly much more than we're used to seeing from this era.
5: Yeah. I think Janet Lee was very forthright with saying at a certain point when the filming was going on, she had this say fuck modesty and just go with it because Uh the stuff that they were giving her kept sliding off and slipping off. Oh,
6: wow. Yeah, I'm sure you just had to
5: go with it to get it, get it done. As I said, graphic designer, Saul Bass responsible for psycho's title sequence may have had some involvement in putting the scene together, though claims that he actually directed the scene have mostly been rebuffed and flat out denied by those who were there. It does seem that at the very least Bass contributed detailed storyboards To help map the scene out, the exact level of his contribution is somewhat unclear. It does seem bizarre that a perfectionist like Hitchcock would let someone else have any influence on what he clearly thought was going to be the most important scene because there's so much emphasis on it. But who knows? Technical shit aside, the shower scene, the murder of this woman who we believed was our main character is an unbelievable... Shock. Storytelling achievement. Hitchcock's been teasing it out the entire time. We just didn't know it because how could we? Early in the film, Marion is intentionally framed with a showerhead directly and ominously over her shoulder. The word motel is used frequently by many characters throughout, including the police officer who Uh seems to be pushing her towards one. Finally, the rain that forces her off the road and into the Bates Motel mimics the shower stream to come. Marion's windshield wipers serving as stand-ins for the giant knife that will later take her life. Marion's been on a collision course the entire time. Yeah. We just didn't know it.
6: Now, do you think that most people, when seeing this the first time, is interpreting it that this is an old woman committing this act? It's a dark, shadowy figure. She seems tall.
5: It's hard to say what people thought. I don't think that people were used to endings and twist endings like this.
6: True, yeah. I think you probably mostly took things at face value or accepted what you were being told.
5: Right. That's key. Anthony Perkins is not the person who kills Janet Lee in this scene. He was not on set that day. He actually was rehearsing for a Broadway play, I believe. So there's someone else in the getup. I think that was also intentional because if you pay close attention to Anthony Perkins physique he has very broad shoulders definitely for someone his size yeah yeah and I think that would have been very noticeable
6: right would have stood out maybe gave it away
5: but yeah to your point I just don't think that audiences would have been prepared for the idea of a big shocking twist because at various points throughout the film you hear the mother's voice you see the silhouette in the window uh-huh. up at the Bates house right I just don't think that they would have
6: I don't think that a lot of people saw are, this coming. are thinking about split personalities at this era of time either. Yeah, and that
5: sort of factors into the terrible ending of this movie that we'll get to later. Yeah, yeah. Where the studio just didn't think that people were going to understand it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but is it possible that there are people that guessed it? Yeah.
6: Sure, course. sure. Yeah.
5: I'm sure there, are, as a small percentage, but I think the majority took things probably at face value, especially in 1960.
6: I think so, too, which is pretty cool and makes the movie work even that much more.
5: The killing itself is made all the more poignant because it comes right after the sad, beautiful connection made between Marion and Norman in the parlor scene. But in that scene, as I mentioned, there is a change in Norman. The awkward jitteriness disappears when Marion mentions the possibility of putting his mother in an institution. A calm stillness comes over him. Perhaps there's some lizard part of his brain, one he is not fully aware of, that decides in that moment, that he will kill her.
6: Right. So is that what seals her fate? It's possible. The fact that all of a sudden... it It's almost like this is interpreted as a threat to his mother, you know? Yeah. But it's hard to say. It seems like we were going down a path one way or another, and she was going to do something that put these wheels in motion.
5: And it continues when Norman returns up to the house, which is further misdirection, of course. But it's an unbelievable performance from Perkins... In these moments, especially in retrospect, after you've seen the film and know the full story, he's showing an internal conflict in these moments. Perkins is playing it as if he's hopeful mother won't disapprove of the pretty woman, hopeful his mother won't kill Marion. That's how he's playing it. So that almost ties in with what you were just talking about. You have the actors playing these scenes in a way, very subtly, but I think you can pick up on it as an audience. Oh, yeah. That he's worried about some external force, and that throws the glare of suspicion off of him. That he seems like there's something beyond his control that he's worried about. Right. But let's go back for a second before Norman runs off to the house. He's got to do something else first. He just can't help himself. Norman removes a painting from the wall in the parlor, revealing a hole, which allows him to secretly watch Marion undress a lot to do with psycho is voyeurism
6: a familiar hitchcock theme
5: sex violence secrets the audience is complicit 1960 was such a chaste time but human instinct was the same show us the pretty woman without her clothes show us the tawdry details of her sex life show us her being punished for her crimes by being stabbed to death show us the audience Uh uh-huh when Norman spies on her through the wall, it's shot in a way that mimics human vision to make us feel even more right complicit in the act. The painting Norman takes off of the wall is by Dutch painter Franz van Mieris, who knows, from the 17th century, Susanna and the Elders, which is a biblical story depicting a woman being spied upon while bathing. It's from the Old Testament of Daniel. It's actually a scene painted by many, many, many different artists. throughout Time. Okay. There's a lot of different Susanna and the elders paintings. However, Hitchcock chose one depicting not only female nudity, but also one where the elders are not only watching Susanna bathe, but also assaulting her body. I see. They're they're grabbing at her and kind of pulling her, you know, one of those weird... Renaissance-style paintings.
6: (laughs) Who knew that Norman had this eye for fine art?
5: He could have chose any number of different variations of this painting. There's ones where the elders are more obscured and further away from the woman bathing. There's some where you don't actually see her nude at all. All kinds of different ones. But he chose a very... Hitchcock did. He chose a very specific one to include in the scene. Sure. A little bit more before we move on from the shower scene. Just a little few things to touch on if you notice as you said when she turns the water on you actually see marion's happiness for the first time yeah big smile she's very pleased with herself for making the right decision she seems like a weight has been lifted off of her shoulders it's one of the only times that janet lee has a legitimate smile in the entire film yeah yeah one of the cool shots that jumps out to me is the reverse shot because at first you see marion up against the shower wall but then eventually it flips around from the other side so you see marion from the other side up against the shower curtain that's right it feels so big and ominous in that moment where she seems very small and vulnerable it seems like the shower is enormous all of a sudden and then your focus is drawn to that empty negative space behind her yep you're actually thinking this shot is bad for a second like What is this? Why would you have this? And then, of course, the the anticipation to dread of like, well, what's going to fill up that space? (laughs) Yeah. And then, of course, it's her doom that's going to fill up that space. So instead of the shower washing away her sins, the water continues to run after Marion is killed, and it ends up washing away her blood. Soon afterward, Norman runs down from the house in a panic and comes across the gruesome scene in Marion's motel room. He does seem aghast, sickened even, but acts quickly. He cleans the murder scene, putting Marion's body, belongings, and the hidden cash, which he doesn't know about, in her car, and then sinks it all in a nearby swamp. It does not feel like the first time something like this has happened, which will be confirmed at the yeah. end of the film.
6: There's sort of a extra sadness to the marion thing here it's not only that she's been killed but the fact that she's being disposed of in this swamp
5: yeah well that's the reality of murder yeah the desecration the lack of lack of ceremony regard for the body it's just something to get rid of right norman almost misses that newspaper with the money tucked inside and then he throws it in and poof there it goes there's this MacGuffin the 40k this thing that we thought was so important to the bottom of the swamp and out of the narrative essentially
6: y- yep.
7: yes miss
1: I'm Marion's sister oh,
7: sure Lila
1: is Marion here
7: oh, of course not thank you something wrong
1: she left home on Friday I was in Tucson over the weekend and I haven't heard from her since not even a phone call Look, if you two are in this thing together, I don't care. It's none of my business. But I want to talk to Marion, and I want her to tell me it's none of my business, and then I'll go...
7: Bob, run out and get yourself some lunch, will you? That's okay, Sam. I brought it with me. Run out and eat it.
3: Now, what thing could we be in together?
1: Sorry about the tears.
7: Well, is Marion in trouble? What is it? Let's all talk about Marion, shall we? Who are you, friend? My name is Arbogast, friend. I'm a private investigator. Where is she, Miss Crane? I don't know you. Well, why? I know you don't, because if you did, I wouldn't be able to follow you. What's your interest in this? Well, $40,000. $40, $40,000? That's right. One of you better tell me what's going on and tell me fast. I can take just so much of this not Take it easy, friend. Take it easy. It's just your girlfriend stole $40,000. What are you talking about? What is this?
1: She was supposed to bank it on Friday for her boss. And she didn't. And no one has seen her since.
7: Someone has seen her. Someone always sees a girl with
1: $40,000. Sam, they don't want to prosecute. They just want the money back. Sam, if she's here... She
7: isn't. She isn't. Miss Crank, can I ask you a question? Did you come up here on just a hunch and nothing more?
1: Not even a hunch, just hope.
7: Well, with a little checking, I could get to believe you.
1: I don't care if you believe me or not. All I want to do is see Marion before she gets in this too deeply.
7: Did you check in Phoenix? Hospitals? Maybe she had an accident. Or a holdup. up No, she was seen leaving town in her own car. By her employer, I might add. I can't believe it. Can you? Well... You know, we're always quickest to doubt people who have a reputation for being honest. I think she's here, Miss Crane. But there's a boyfriend. Well, She's not back there with the nuts and bolts, but she's here in this town somewhere. I'll find her. I'll be seeing you.
5: A week later, Mary and Sister Lila, played by Vera Miles.
6: Who was another, like, Hitchcock girl at one point
5: arrives in Fairvale, tracking down Sam while in search of her missing sister. She tells Sam about the theft and demands to know Marion's whereabouts. He, of course, denies knowing anything about her disappearance. A private investigator named Arbogast, played by Martin Balsam, approaches them, saying that he has been hired to retrieve the money. Vera Miles is actually wearing a wig. She had shaved her head for a role in the film Five Branded Women, which also came out in 1960, which sounds great.
6: Yeah. (laughs) It does look like a wig. I didn't realize that, though. I didn't realize that she had shaved her head.
5: Arbogast begins searching all the motels in the area, looking for signs of Marion. He eventually makes his way to the Bates Motel and questions Norman. At first, Norman seems to play it cool, but eventually his nervous behavior starts to emerge, and his answers become inconsistent, arousing Arbogast's suspicion. Arbogast examines the guest register and is able to match the handwriting to the signature for Mary Samuels, concluding that Marion spent the night in the motel. This is a pretty big botch job on Norman's part because, look, (laughs) when you murder someone, chances are it's someone you know. And that's why a lot of murders are solved, because there's logical suspects. It's the husband. It's the ex-lover. It's the neighbor. Whatever. When you murder a random person, it's very hard to solve it unless you fuck up, because there's really no way to connect you to it. Arbogast is not a cop. He's a private eye. That's right. All you have to do is give him enough normal-sounding answers, and he'll probably quickly move on like (laughs) he did from every other motel. I know. There's nothing to connect Norman to Marion Crane.
6: Just this doofus cannot keep us cool.
5: All he has to say is, yeah, she stayed here when he sees the picture.
6: I know. And it, like once he starts digging the hole, he only keeps digging himself deeper.
5: Yeah, because at one point he says, no one stayed here for weeks. And then very quickly he said a couple just said last week that they almost didn't know he was open and
6: it's a great interrogation scene because it's like a good example of catching someone in their own lies and just letting them talk and and then
5: acting like it's normal and not a big deal right like, yeah yeah yeah. that makes sense like just keep them going yeah yeah
8: going
0: you uh you out to buy a motel no <laughs> the reason i asked you said you'd seen so many in the past couple of days i thought maybe you uh what uh what was it you wanted to ask
7: well you see, I'm looking for a missing person. My name's Arbogast. I'm a private investigator. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to trace a girl that's been missing for oh, about a week now from Phoenix. It's a private man of the family wants to forgive her. She's not in any trouble. I didn't think the policeman looking for people who aren't in trouble. Oh, I'm, I'm not the police. Oh, yeah? We have reason to believe that she came along this way may have stopped in the area. Did she stop here? Well, no one stopped here for a couple of weeks. Do you mind looking at the picture before committing yourself? Commit myself? You sure talk like a policeman. (laughs) Look at the picture, please. Mm -hmm. Sure? Yeah. Well, she may have used an alias. Uh, Marion Crane's a real name, but she could have registered under a different one.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I don't don't even even much bother with uh, guests registering anymore. You know, one by one, you drop the formalities. Uh, I shouldn't even bother changing the sheets, but... Old habits die hard, which reminds me. What's that? It's the light, the sign. We had a couple last week said if this thing hadn't been on, they would have thought this was an old, deserted... Well, yeah, you see, that's exactly my point. Uh, you said that nobody
7: had been here for a couple of weeks, uh, and there's a couple came by and they didn't yeah, even know that you were open.
0: Yeah.
7: Well, as you say, old habits die hard. It's possible this girl could have registered under another name. Do you mind if I look at your book? No. Get the date somewhere. Yeah. There's nobody. So now I have a sample of her handwriting. Oh, yes. Here we are. Marie Samuels. That's an interesting address. Is that her? Uh, yeah, I think so. Marie Marion Samuels. Her boyfriend's name is Sam. Mm hmm. Was she in disguise, by any chance? You
0: want to check the picture again? Look, I, I wasn't lying to you, Mr. Oh, you... I know that. I know you wouldn't lie. You know, it's tough keeping track of the timer. Oh, I you? know, I know. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it was raining, and, um... Her hair was all wet. I tell you, it's not <laughs> its not really a very good picture, either. No, I guess not. Well, tell me all about her. Well, um she arrived uh rather late one night and she went straight to sleep and uh left early the next morning
7: well how early oh um, very early mm-hmm. which morning was that uh, the um the, 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 the next morning sunday i see mm-hmm. uh did anyone meet her here no did she arrive with anyone no uh-huh did she make any phone calls or no locally did you spend the night with her? No. Well, then, how would you know that she didn't make any phone calls?
0: Oh, well, well she was very tired, and uh, see, and now I'm starting to, to um, remember it. I'm making a mental picture of it in my mind. You know, if you make a mental picturization of something, that's right. That's right. Take your time. Um, she was, she was sitting back there. No, no, she was standing back there with a sandwich in her hand. And she said uh, she had to go to sleep early because she had a, a long dr- drive uh, ahead of her. Mm-hmm. Back where? Back uh, where she came from. No, you said
7: before that she was uh, sitting back there, Oh uh, standing uh, back Yes, but
0: back in my uh, in my parlor there. Uh, she was very hungry, and I made her a sandwich. And then she said uh, that she was tired, and she uh, um, had to go st- right, right to bed. Oh, I see. Uh,
7: how did she pay you?
0: Cash, check? Cash.
7: Cash, huh? And uh, after she left, she uh,
0: didn't come back.
3: Hmm.
0: Well, why should she? <laughs> uh, well, Mr. Arbogast, uh, I guess that's about it. I, I, I got some work to do, if you don't mind. Well, to tell
7: you the truth, I do mind. You see, if it doesn't gel, it isn't aspic, and this ain't gelling. It's not like coming
0: together, something's missing. Well, I don't know what you c- could expect me to know. People just come and go, you know. That's right.
7: She isn't still here, is she? No. <laughs> if I wanted to uh, check the cabins, all twelve of them, I'd need a wand, wouldn't I?
0: <laughs> Listen, if you don't believe me, come on, come on with me. You can help me change beds, okay?
7: okay? Oh, oh. <laughs> no thanks.
5: Getting flustered, Norman eventually admits that his mother also lives on the property and sort of infers that she spoke to Marion, which again, he just starts saying all this stuff. I know. Without much prompting, Arbogast asks to speak to Norman's mother, but Norman refuses. Arbogast leaves the property not entirely satisfied or convinced, and he updates Sam and Lila about his search via payphone. He promises to return to Sam's house and speak with them in person within an hour. Arbogast returns to the motel and snoops around a bit, not immediately finding Norman. Eventually, he sneaks up to the big house, entering without knocking to search for Norman's mother. At the top of the main staircase, the shadowy figure quickly emerges from the bedroom, this time a little more clear, Uh but you still don't see the face or anything. And stabs Arbogast to death, sending him back down the stairs.
6: Also, kind of iconic scene, just the way it's shot, really, more than anything.
5: Yeah, it's a pretty effective early history jump scare. Yeah. Because there's not really any music or anything, but then the big cue where the figure emerges quickly from the bedroom, brandishing the knife. It's the same dress. We see long gray hair tied. That's right. Big knife.
6: And this is almost a miniature version of the Marion thing, because for this segment of the movie, this private investigator is kind of like our main character, it feels like.
5: Yeah. Now we're not sure who we're fixating on.
6: Arbogastle, the way that he's introduced, where he's sort of interrogative of Sam as well, but then kind of becomes an ally.
5: (laughs) Well, I think he buys their story because he's spying on them, Lila and Sam, and he realizes that they don't really know where she is. Right. Because I think the logical thought was, okay, well, she took this 40K and now has come yeah. to Fairvale to find her boyfriend.
6: He definitely becomes a ally to Lila because he's like calling her up and being like, all right, let me meet you back there. I don't think Sam knows about this.
5: Yeah. He's probably thinking they can pool their resources yeah, and sort of work as a team. Because the attitude becomes... If we can just get the 40k back, that's right. We'll let it go. Obviously, I would imagine Marion's going to be fired, but they're not going to press charges. She can get out from under this if she just comes back with the 40k. It's
6: like no country for old men.
5: Since Arbogast never returns, Sam and Lila grow concerned. Sam heads to the motel himself. However, Norman is once again disposing of evidence at the swamp, so there's no one to be found when Sam arrives. He does see a figure in the house whom he assumes is Norman's mother based on what Arbogast has told them. Sam returns and gets Lila. Together, the two of them go to alert the sheriff. The sheriff suggests Arbogast lied to Sam and Lila so that he could pursue Marion and the money for himself. But the sheriff sort of doesn't understand the scenario. That really wouldn't make any sense.
6: Is it not a little surprising that Norman has gone these years without making any other waves. It just seems like there would be a little bit more suspicion around him.
5: Well, we find out later there's two missing persons who get attributed to him, but it is possible that his mental illness just took time to turn murderous.
6: That's true. I guess they're just thinking, like, this is just another dude from town. Even though his mother died under suspicious (laughs) circumstances.
8: If he's back, he probably isn't even in bed yet. He wasn't out when you were there, he just wasn't answering the door in the dead of night like some people do. This fellow lives like a hermit. You must remember that bad business out there about 10 years ago.
1: Please, call. Florey, the sheriff wants you to connect him with the Bates Motel.
8: Uh, Norman! Sheriff Chambers, yeah, I've been just fine, thanks. Listen, we got worries here. Now, have you uh, had a fellow stop by there tonight? Well, this one wouldn't be a customer anyway. It's a private detective, name of Arbogast. Arbogast. What? Yeah, and after he left? No, that's that's okay, Norman. This detective was there. Norman told him about the girl. The detective thanked him, and he went away.
1: And he didn't come back. He didn't see the mother.
8: Your detective told you he couldn't come right back because he was going to question Norman Bates' mother, right? Yes. Norman Bates' mother has been dead and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past 10 years.
1: I helped Norman pick out the dress she was
2: buried in, periwinkle blue
8: ain't only local history, Sam. It's the only case of murder and suicide on Fairvale ledgers. Mrs. Bates poisoned this guy she was involved with when she found out he was married, and then took a help to the same self herself. Strychnine. Ugly way to die.
1: Norman found them dead together in bed.
8: You mean that old woman I saw sitting in the window out there wasn't Bates' mother? Now, wait a minute, Sam. Are you sure you saw an old woman? Yes, in the house behind the motel. I called and pounded, but she just ignored me. You want to tell me you saw Norman Bates' mother?
1: But it had to be, because Arbogast said so, too. And the young man wouldn't let him see her because she was too ill.
8: Well, if the woman up there is Mrs. Bates, who's that woman buried out in Green Lawn Cemetery?
5: I think what I was getting at, though, was that Arbogast didn't have to call them even once. No. And the sheriff isn't really getting that. There would be no reason to misdirect them at all because he wouldn't really have to talk to them ever again.
6: I know. The sheriff's, like, immediately fingering friggin' Arbogast is wanting to take the money.
5: The sheriff also drops a pretty big bombshell, though. He tells Sam and Lila that Norman's mother died in a murder-suicide ten years earlier. (laughs) Which isn't treated like that in that moment because none of those characters know what the audience knows. The big shock is to the audience because we've seen the silhouette, we've heard the voice, and we assume that it's Norman's mother doing the killing. Yeah,
6: we've just been going with what we've been told.
5: But the way they frame that scene, too, is also kind of cool because... It leaves open the possibility that there's something else going on that we don't even know. Because the sheriff says something to the effect of, well, if Norman's mother is still alive, then who did we bury out in that cemetery? That kind of a thing. Right. Which opens the door for any number of possibilities as to what's going on. Although
6: I don't think the sheriff is for a second. I think he's being a dick. I don't think that he's buying that. No, I know. To the audience. Okay. Because the
5: audience is the only one.
6: Reacting, the audience are yeah. the only
5: ones who have really experienced that there all is... of Norman's mother.
6: Exactly. Yes.
5: These characters only kind of think that there might be a mother based on what Arbogast says, and then see, Sam saw the silhouette in the window very briefly. Back at the Bates home, Norman gets into an argument with his mother over what she's done. He wants to hide her in the fruit cellar.
0: <laughs> in the case fruit cellar.
5: People come, which is actually what happens. It's it's very brief, but. For some reason, it seems like everyone goes to church on Sunday, including Sam and Lila, which I found to be kind of weird. I know. How do they all end up at the same church? Right. But anyway...
6: Apparently, they're not kicking you out for a divorce in this parish.
5: The sheriff mentions having already gone over there that morning. So that yeah. is why Norman hides his mother in the fruit cellar, because the sheriff did go over there. right? But you have to kind of just pick up on that through conversation. We don't actually see that scene.
6: Yeah. Sheriff went over, checked things out. Was like, "Well, good enough for me."
5: Norman's mother was voiced by Paul, Jasmine, Virginia Gregg, and Jeanette Nolan. The three voices were thoroughly mixed, except for the last speech, which is all Gregg's. But they were all blended together. To oh, cool! Get the perfect. Yeah. Cocktail of a voice. We do actually see Norman carrying his mother down the stairs, but it's shot from above, so we right. just don't don't get a good look at what's going on there one of the things that hitchcock did that plays into his whole obsession with not revealing the ending and spoilers and that whole thing is he did float it out there about screen testing and auditioning actresses to play anthony perkins's mother in his new film so the word was kind of out there yeah. that there, he may have been considering these different actresses and all that different stuff he was obsessed with with people not knowing the end of this movie. I
6: know. It's awesome. The misdirection.
5: Convinced that something happened to Arbogast and feeling as if things just aren't adding up, Lila and Sam drive to the Bates Motel with the plan to pose as husband and wife check into a room and then search the place. Feeling very Halloween 3. Here. Ah, Yes. <laughs> Sam's like, well,
6: be better than the floor anyway.
5: Yeah. <laughs> that whole thing.
6: You know, I don't think they've got enough vacancies here. We're going to have to share a room.
5: Much is made of the potential for romance between Sam and Lila, which is pretty fucked up under the circumstances on Sam's part and Lila's part, really, and them coming together and having a child plays into Psycho 2 and the sequels, or at least to Psycho 3 and everything. But I never really got that sense. I guess that's just something that audience maybe it felt like they were feeling
6: i don't know it does feel like there's an instant closeness there but they have a shared mission
5: yeah i'm not seeing enough evidence other than assumptions right about spending this time together or whatever but norman's no fool he has to think on some level that these people showing up this visit is related to all of the sudden increased activity at the hotel right I know. They don't ask about Arbogast or Marion or anything. They don't act like they're involved, but okay, no one ever comes to this place. I kill two people. Now here's more people. I would be a little suspicious. I think he has to know something's up. I would say. Sam distracts Norman in the office while Lila sneaks around and then eventually up into the house. She discovers a bedroom frozen in time.
6: Yeah. Her whole experience, her journey from separating from Sam is kind of like uniquely shot and i would say a building sense of dread the entire time even her going behind the motel and almost giving us a different perspective of the house that we've yeah. that we've had to this point she takes a dirt path yeah, yeah. to the house it's kind of steps. scary
5: the bedroom she finds is more norma desmond than it is norma bates true norman becomes suspicious and agitated with sam's line of questioning you have to understand everyone including Arbogast, the dearly departed, but also now Sam and Lila. They're all working under the theory that Norman found out about the 40K and did something to Marion in order to take the money and improve his life. A big part of their working theory (laughs) is your life sucks so bad that you have to have seen that money and started to get ideas. They don't really understand the depths of his psychosis. They just assume a normal motive is a play Norman and Sam struggle, and Norman knocks Sam unconscious with an object he picks up off of the table. So they're back in the parlor. Not a great showing from Sam here. He just drops like a bag of potatoes. Realizing that Lila must be in his house, Norman runs up there, forcing Lila to hide down in the fruit cellar. It's down in that dark, dank cellar where we finally discover the truth about Mrs. Bates.
6: Oh, yeah. What a reveal it is.
5: Thinking Norman's mother is sitting on a chair facing the corner. Almost like Blair Witch Project. <laughs> like, why are you down here facing this corner? Yeah. <laughs> Lila approaches only to discover it's actually the woman's mummified corpse.
6: Uh-huh. Horrifying. Something
5: more or less borrowed in Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the desiccated True. corpses and all that stuff. Lila screams and Norman wearing a wig in his mother's clothes, enters the cellar and tries to stab her. Sam appears at the last second and makes the save, the save subduing Norman. Not a completely well-choreographed moment it's there. It's sort
6: of weird. I was wondering if the whole disorder has sort of a physical toll as well, you know? It seems like Norman should be able to hold his own a little bit with Sam.
5: Yeah, it seems like he's just disappearing into some uh, yeah weird psychotic moment. Right. Or maybe he's really taking on the attributes of That's what the I was wondering. Woman. Yeah. Again, I think that if you contextualize the film, you understand that there's not really a lot of one-for-one comparisons to Psycho, even in the world of Alfred Hitchcock. So they probably didn't put a lot of emphasis on weird moments like this. Totally. They just wrote in the script Sam makes the save and then they just kind of Play it out, even if it doesn't look super convincing as to what exactly you're seeing. Yeah. You, you sort it's of It's
6: probably it. the weakest moment of action.
5: At the police station, a psychiatrist explains that Norman killed his mother and her lover 10 years earlier out of jealousy. Unable to bear the guilt, Norman mummified his mother's corpse and began treating it as if she were still alive. He recreated his mother as an alternative personality as jealous and possessive towards Norman as he had felt about his mother.
6: I think this scene with the psychiatrist is absolutely incredible. This guy hits it out of the park. His pacing, his delivery, what this explanation is.
5: Well, it's interesting you say that, because it's, it's considered, like, the worst Hitchcock scene.
6: Wow, we'll get there I, in a second. I don't think that at all. And De Palma does scenes like this.
4: I got the whole story, but not from Norman. I got it from his mother. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. And now the other half has taken over. Probably for all time.
1: Did he kill my sister?
4: Yes.
8: And no. Well, now, look, if you're trying to lay some psychiatric groundwork for some sort of plea, this fellow would like to cop it. <laughs> A psychiatrist
4: doesn't lay the groundwork, he merely tries to explain it. But my sister is. Yes. Yes, I'm sorry. The private investigator, too. If you drag that swamp somewhere in the vicinity of the motel, you'll. Have you any unsolved missing persons cases on your books? Yes. Two young girls. Did he confess to... Like I said, the mother. Now, to understand it the way I understood it, hearing it from the mother, that is, from the mother half of Norman's mind, you have to go back ten years to the time when Norman murdered his mother and her lover. Now, he was already dangerously disturbed had been ever since his father died. His mother was a clinging, demanding woman. And for years, the two of them lived as if there was no one else in the world. Then she met a man, and it seemed to Norman that she threw him over for this man. Now that pushed him over the line and he killed them both. Matricide is probably the most unbearable crime of all. Most unbearable to the son who commits it. So he had to erase the crime, Crime. at least in his own mind. He stole her corpse. A weighted coffin was buried. He hid the body in the fruit cellar. Even treated it to keep it as well as it would keep. And that still wasn't enough. She was there. But she was a corpse. So he began to think and speak for her. Give her half his life, so to speak. At times, he could be both personalities, carry on conversations. At other times, the mother half took over completely. He was never all Norman, but he was often only mother. And because he was so pathologically jealous of her, He assumed that she was as jealous of him. Therefore, if he felt a strong attraction to any other woman, the mother's side of him would go wild. When he met your sister, he was touched by her, aroused by her. He wanted her. That set off the jealous mother, and mother killed the girl. Now, after the murder, Norman returned as if from a deep sleep. And like a dutiful son, covered up all traces of the crime he was convinced his mother had committed.
7: Why was he dressed like that? He's a transvestite. Uh,
4: not exactly. A man who dresses in women's clothing in order to achieve a sexual change or satisfaction is a transvestite. But in Norman's case, He was simply doing everything possible to keep alive the illusion of his mother being alive. And when reality came too close, when danger or desire threatened that illusion, he'd dress up, even to a cheap wig he bought. He'd walk about the house, sit in her chair, speak in her voice. He tried to be his mother. And uh, now he is. Now, that's what I meant when I said I got the story from the mother. You see, when the mind houses two personalities, there's always a conflict, a battle. In Norman's case, the battle is over, and the dominant personality is won. And the $40,000? Who got that? The swamp. These were crimes of passion, not profit.
5: When Norman is attracted to a woman mother takes over, quote-unquote. He had killed two other young women before Marion, so that's why, despite his feigning of disgust upon finding what happened to Marion, he's able to quickly know what to do. Yeah, yeah. Pretty efficiently. The psychiatrist concludes that, quote-unquote, mother has now submerged Norman's personality. Norman sits in a jail cell and hears his mother saying the murders were all his doing, The final shot of the film is Marion's car being pulled out of the swamp. And then you, like many other movies of this time period, that just abrupt
6: the end. I know.
5: (laughs) And there's not really much of closing credits or anything because they really didn't list that many credits back then. So you, you had your opening stuff and then that was good enough.
6: Yeah, I guess I get why people don't like this guy actually explaining it.
5: Well, Hitchcock hated the infamous psychiatrist explanation scene done by Dr. Fred Richmond, who was played by Simon Oakland, at the end of the movie. He felt the scene was boring and the movie came to a grinding halt at that point. The scene has also been ripped to shreds by critics over the years as the worst scene in the movie and one of Hitchcock's worst scenes ever. Hitchcock and viewers felt the scene was unnecessary, overly obvious, and too talky, slowing down the action and suspense of the rest of the movie but there was strong pressure from the studios and the powers that be that funded and distributed the movie to relieve the pressure from earlier scenes and also to explain the action to less insightful audience members who might be confused by the big reveal at the ending. So the scene was kept in. I think that for me, it's a lack of faith in the audience to be able to put any of this together themselves because I guess at the time, this would have been pretty unprecedented territory. So from that perspective, it certainly makes sense. But watching it now, you feel like you're just having someone explain what you just saw.
6: I guess one of the things that I think of the characters, Sam and Lila wouldn't get this. And like they need it explained.
5: Well, yeah, I I would agree with that, but you wouldn't often see that in a
6: movie. Sure, sure. But I also think that there's something to the way that the pace of the movie keeps changing throughout. And I think that this is just like one more iteration of it.
5: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different resets and refocuses. Yeah. Yeah. And things of that nature. But I just think that it's sort of like Friday the 13th. Right. Where if you end on that jump scare, you're walking out of the theater going, holy fuck. Oh, and yeah, yeah. There's this scene where she's in the hospital and sure. the cops <laughs> are like, yeah. boy, we didn't see any boy. Yeah. And you're like what the fuck? I think there would have been a way to end this a little bit more of on a high note.
6: True. I do always think in this and in the remake, the part where the one cop or whatever goes to give Norman a blanket and just replies in the mother's voice is effective.
5: Yeah, yeah. The stuff with Norman is really cool at the end. This is the part where the policeman, before the psychiatrist comes in and explains it, he uses the term transvestite, which was also something completely foreign and unknown to audiences at this point, as far as films go. The ending involves a superimposition of three elements that many people fail to notice. The last shot of Norman Bates' face has a still frame of a human skull superimposed on it almost subliminally. The skull is that of the mother that we saw, that dried up face. This then dissolves into the shot of the chain pulling the car with Marion's body out of the swamp. The chain is placed so that it appears to be moving through where Norman slash Mother's heart would be, symbolically showing that the two are tied together. I think that Hitchcock also toyed around with different endings besides the superimposition shot, but settled on this one eventually.
8: He feels a little chill. Can I bring him this blanket? Sure. All right.
2: Thank you. It's sad And I won't, I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them, let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even gonna swat that fly. I hope they are watching, they'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, Why, she
5: wouldn't even harm a fly. Psycho went on to become the gold standard in an expanding horror genre, a classic, an icon, but Hitchcock initially thought he failed. He was disappointed with the movie. He even disliked the shower scene and believed the movie would end up on a low-budget drive-in double bill.
6: Which According would to cool.
5: Bernard Herman, Hitchcock thought of editing it down for broadcast on his television show. Oh, wow. Hitchcock did not conceive of music for the shower scene, which I already pointed out. But Herman did it anyway. After seeing the movie with its score, including the shower sequence, Hitchcock realized that the movie would work. And that he actually did have something.
6: What a wild ride.
5: The influences and homages are endless. Multiple characters in Halloween are inspired by this movie. Jamie Lee Curtis was cast as the heroine based on the casting of her mother, Janet Lee, in Psycho. Dr. Sam Loomis is directly named after John Gavin's character. Of course. The name of Marion Chambers, the nurse in Halloween, is inspired by Marion and Judge Chambers. Billy Loomis, the killer from Scream, was also inspired by Sam Loomis in Psycho. Also, Bates High School in Carrie is inspired by Norman Bates. Oh, wow. In Halloween H20, 20 years later, Janet Lee drove a 1950s car similar to Marion Cranes, which, when revealed, part of the Psycho theme is played, and I thought it was kind of cool that they got to be in the same movie together all those years later although they oh, yeah. both are in the fog as well but right they don't share scenes True. in the fog i don't think mm-hmm. maybe at the end i guess right
6: yeah i think at the end i think everybody's together at the end so
5: let's get into the sequels a little <laughs> bit
6: well it's safe to say though that this movie is endlessly influential and referenced and just shows up and seemingly will continue
5: in all of pop culture yeah, yeah. After Alfred Hitchcock died in 1980, three sequels to Psycho were produced. Way, way back on October 30th, 2017, we covered Psycho 2 as part of a rare double feature with The Fog, the fog. which How we just mentioned. That? Yeah, that was not intentional. Intentional. We actually recorded an entire episode for The Fog, which I'm not even sure what happened. I
6: we we just always had it didn't problems. Work or yeah, it didn't exist or I something. mean. We were shockingly resilient to be able to stick with this, the times where we had to scrap episodes. I cannot imagine trying to tackle this again.
5: <laughs> that would have only been the second Greatest October, so we weren't as serious about it yet. Yeah. So we decided to do a double feature because we hadn't even picked the last movie yet Right. for the Greatest October. Now I have it years in advance. I know. <laughs> So we just randomly decided to do a double feature of Psycho 2.
6: And like an abbreviated take on The Fog. I think it was just like we couldn't go through the whole thing again.
5: Yeah. That was also the time period where we were doing a lot of sequels first, which is something that this podcast, for whatever reason, did multiple, multiple (laughs) times. Back to the Future 2. Yeah. American Psycho 2. Psycho 2. Blair Witch 2. I don't know.
6: Not a lot of rhyme or reason here.
5: But Psycho 2 which came out in 1983, was directed by Richard Franklin, written by Tom Holland, who would go on to direct Fright Night and be kind of a big deal in horror. Stars Anthony Perkins and Vera Miles, who both returned, plus Robert Loggia and Meg Tilly.
6: Kind of a cool movie. Not really anything like the original.
5: It's a lot different, but when you compare it to the horror sequels of the 80s, the sequels to your other slasher films, yeah, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, etc. It holds its own. It, I Definitely. would say the the thing that I would describe Psycho 2 as better than you would think. Right. That's the tagline. <laughs> it was a profitable film. and Better than you would think. I think most people would assume it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Because how do you do a sequel to a classic like Psycho, no involvement from Hitchcock, obviously, well, he's dead
6: and... You're asking a lot when you're saying that we're going to start off with a reformed Norman Bates. It's
5: 23 years later. Yeah. The whole film hinges upon a Lila Crane heel turn. Yeah. Where Lila ends up being the villain of the piece, really. That's right. Norman Bates is even more sympathetic. (laughs) It's quite a choice. I know. But I don't regret doing it on the podcast because I like no, the movie a it's lot. It's a cool movie. and I've it? gone on to watch it a lot since the first time seeing it. Yeah.
6: Some people say it's better than the original.
5: Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I think he might be alone on that island. Yeah,
6: I think so. It is a cool, unique movie. The ending is great.
5: <laughs> yeah, I love the ending. Yeah. Psycho 3 was released in 1986. It was directed by Anthony Perkins himself. There you go. Who returns to star once again, written by Charles Edward Pogue, who I believe we mentioned on this podcast. I think he was maybe one of the writers of The Fly. Okay. It's not great, but it's still fun.
6: I don't think I've seen that one. I remember seeing the VHS sitting out, though.
5: Jeff Fahey is in it.
6: Oh, wow.
5: It's got a lot of 80s sleaziness to it.
6: Okay, it sounded good.
5: It turned a small profit. It was the last of the Psycho films until the remake to be released theatrically. I guess if you're holding Psycho sacred and you just don't want to see low-budget sequels at all, then yeah, having two come out in three years is kind of annoying, and Psycho 3 is a pale, pale comparison to the original. But, again, it's not as bad as you would think. It's still kind of enjoyable on its own merit. You can't really compare it to Psycho or anything, but it's fine. Yeah, sure. Is it as good as Psycho 2? No. It's not even near as good as that. (laughs) Is it
6: one of those things where they keep the continuity from Psycho 2? Or not?
5: Into Psycho 3, yeah. Okay. However, Psycho 4, they do throw out the continuity from 2 and 3 and sort of go back to 1. Gotcha. Psycho 4, the beginning, came out in 1990. It was directed by Mick Garris, who has directed a lot of horror stuff. He was one of the writers of Hocus Pocus, but he directed Sleepwalkers and a ton of other movies, mostly shit. Gotcha. A lot of Stephen King TV adaptations. He seems like a cool dude, but... Anytime his name gets added to a franchise, you know that you're at a point where it's pretty much over. (laughs) The original screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, returns. Whoa, back in the mix. Because he didn't like 2 and 3 and wanted to get it back to basics. It serves as both a sequel and a prequel simultaneously, jumping back and forth. With Olivia Hussey as Norman's mother, Perkins did appear as the older version in, in the sequel part of it, it was made for TV. It aired on Showtime. It oh, mostly wow. ignores two and three. I did not see this film ever. I, I've okay. never seen it, so I can't speak to it. It's not really out there right now, as far as streaming. So I don't think you can find it, which is weird. You would think that those movies that aired direct to Showtime would still just be on Showtime. Like, why not? I know, but I guess their rights probably expire and go yeah, somewhere I guess that's true. Something. I doubt Showtime financed it. That's probably the thing. They probably didn't own it. Yeah. As we have referenced several times throughout the episode, in 1998, there was a nearly shot-for-shot remake in color directed by Gus Van Zandt, starring Vince Vaughn, Julianne Moore, and Anne Heche, amongst others. I think Viggo Mortensen as uh-huh. well. Yeah,
6: Sam Loomis. It
5: was a huge box office bomb. The budget was $60 million. It brought in 37.2. Wow. It was not reviewed favorably by critics.
6: I didn't realize that it did that bad. I, I just figured it was one of those movies that everyone saw at the time. No. Hmm.
5: I remember it being mocked almost immediately. It's okay. like, what the fuck is this bullshit? That's hard for me
6: to say. I was still kind of a kid, and I watched it on whatever HBO or whatever as soon as it was available.
5: It's sort of how you would imagine people reacting to a Jaws remake right now sure, or something yeah. like that, where people are like, fuck you. I know. But he got to do whatever he wanted in the wake of Goodwill Hunting's success, this is what he, and he picked. Thought of this more as an experiment, although I'm sure the studio was thrilled to hear that it was called an experiment for sixty million dollars. <laughs> they did use the original script by Stefano. However, it is set in 1998, which is confusing. They don't really make it a period piece.
6: Correct. Yeah. It's
5: not terrible, but it's not good either. Yeah. It's hard to explain, really. I like, know. It's not bad, but it is missing something from the original. It the just artistic doesn't have pizzazz, that same yeah, drive to it. I do think the performances are not too bad, and what can you say?
6: Yeah, I know it's one of those things that doesn't need to exist, but they did it, so you know.
5: I have it on Blu-ray because Scream Factory released it. Yeah, but I've only watched it once, and I don't know that I would ever really be driven to watch it again. Because there wasn't really anything that would make me choose it over the original. Sure, yeah. They used Agreed. the same score, at least, so it has that going for it. They didn't <laughs> mess with that. Right. They were able to get away with a little bit more.
6: Yes, it definitely is a little bit more explicit.
5: They pushed some of the boundaries. I think Vince Vaughn, as Norman Bates, is masturbating yes. clearly. Right. Things of that nature, which I think come
6: Which was kind of shocking. Yeah. You don't have that in a lot of movies. <laughs> That is pushing the envelope.
5: From 2013 to 2017, a television series called Bates Motel aired on cable and served as a prequel to Psycho, though it was set in modern times. Freddie Highmore played young Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga played his mother. And this was a real shocking thing that I had no idea about. In the final season, Rihanna guest starred as Marion Crane. Oh, wow. I was thinking, what?
6: (laughs) That um, made me want
5: to go back and watch this show now. Yeah. I only ever saw the pilot, the first yeah, episode. Yeah,
6: I watched like a, a, a little bit of it, never got super into it, although it did have its fans.
5: Yeah, it lasted for f- four seasons. Yeah, I heard that it goes really off the rails into territory that you don't really care about or want to see Well, in a psycho you, yeah, prequel. You
6: knew that they were going to run out of road.
5: Yeah. How much could it be about right. him wanting to fuck his mother?
6: Well, I don't know when you phrase it like that.
5: <laughs> I thought the pilot was decent. I do remember a very disturbing rape in the first episode, uh-huh. which set the scene for this show to be kind of grotesque, yeah. but I wasn't like offended. That's not why I st- didn't stick with it. It's just one of those things where I watched it and then, same for whatever yeah. reason, didn't pick it up anymore after that. I was just curious, and then it was like,
2: all right.
6: Okay, I see what that's all about.
2: What are you doing? What? What?
6: Vincent stopped making picks.
1: Well, how am I going to know what movies to see?
5: We have a wide variety of Gene Jean picks.
1: Gene's trash.
4: I'm Gene.
5: Instead of a traditional recommendation segment to save a little time, we're just going to tell you where you can watch some of the things we just discussed. Psycho, Psycho 2, Psycho 3 and the 1998 remake are all available for streaming on Peacock. Hopefully still. When I did these notes, it was a week or so (laughs) ago, and I know that by the time this airs, we're going to be switching over to October, but that's where they all were available before. I'm
6: sure we'll be okay.
5: Number four is not available for streaming, and I've never seen it. One of my sources for this episode was the documentary 7852 Hitchcock's Shower Scene, which is seemingly only available as a streaming rental so you'd have to pay for that as well as the film that Matt referenced a little bit Hitchcock from 2012 starring Anthony Hopkins, Helen Mirren and Scarlett Johansson. That is also a streaming rental. Yeah. Not for free anywhere. It's
6: sort of fun. It just is It I, focuses
5: yeah. on the making of Psycho, which is weird because there was one about when he was making The Birds too. What was that movie called? It came out around the same the, time. I think
6: it's like The Girl or something. Yeah. Yeah, it did come out like the same year. It's so which weird seems to always happen.
5: Oh, that shit happens, yeah. I can't remember who plays Hitchcock in that I think one. It,
6: that Toby something. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's sort of an odd looking dude.
5: Okay. So that's where you can find the films we discussed. We are just getting started with Greatest October. As I mentioned at the outset of the episode...
6: Toby Jones, sorry.
5: We'll be dropping these at random times. There's not going to be really as much dedication to the usual release dates throughout October. So just be ready. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Podbean so you never miss anything. You can find us on Twitter at GreatestPod. So follow us on there. Drop us a line, send us a message, tweet at us, whatever you want. We love to hear from everybody. Please give us a rating and review for the podcast as well on Apple Podcasts. Please tell your friends to listen to the show. We're basically a word of mouth deal here. That's how it goes. No promotion or anything. There's really no way for us to do that. It
6: does seem like the people that we find or find us Certainly happy to have you. It does seem like they struggle to get other people on board, which I understand.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to convince people to listen to a podcast. Really? If you'd like a free sticker, let us know on Twitter. We'll send it to you. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
3: Come inside. My mausoleum Light a candle on the pathway to my casket room Step on through rusty iron archways Where a pigeon lays Who died without his lover so strange and beautiful How you kiss upon my bones A mistake, a tragedy Since we missed each other by a sense They took my clothes And sent to a museum All I am is dust In a handlebar They took my guns In horse and swords For history But they kindly left A photograph
0: Tracy, you are going to die.
3: What? No! When I tell you who I'm dating, Squeaky Fromm, she is difficult.